Hello, and welcome to the Inspired Educator Podcast, where educators share insights to improve the educational experience. I'm your host, Dr. Yuling Lee. On today's episode, I'm presenting a conversation with Dr. Ken Badley. Ken is the author and editor of many books, including Complexities of Authority in the Classroom, Joyful Resilience as Educational Practice, Curriculum Planning with Design Language, and Metaphors We Teach By. We have a wide-ranging discussion about Ken's experience with teaching and learning, and this conversation was recorded in February, right before Dr. Badley was giving a public lecture titled, Redeeming Teaching from Fractured to Flourishing. Without further ado, here's Dr. Ken Badley. Hi, Ken. Welcome to our show. I really only had kind of four big questions, and... and some of them are related to your works, but the first one, from what I understand, we have a connection here at Trinity Western with you. So you began to meet with Harold Van Brumlin. Can you kind of describe how that relationship developed? And, mm-hmm. and I know a book came yeah. out of it. Uh, Harold and I were um, doctoral students at the same time, Oh, really? but I did not know that until I was a student at Regent College. And at that time, this is 19... 19- uh, 81, 82 academic year, um, I was asked to cover the January education course. I had an MED when I came to region and I'd been teaching already in high school. They asked me if I would, uh, as a sessional instructor, teach, mm-hmm. teach a two week or a three week course. And they handed me a list of suggested guests who had come to region other January terms. And one of them was this person named Harold Van Rowland. And when I met him, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm in a doctoral class with him. <laughs> and so we became uh, friends, colleagues, and we, I think we both graduated in 1986 okay. or so. Uh, I don't know, maybe he was ahead of me, but I left Vancouver before I finished uh, my PhD. And so uh, I was teaching in Regina and finished in 86, and Harold may have finished before that. But then we had a long collegiate relationship uh, in various contexts, and um, in quite early, maybe 2006 or seven, I said to him, we should make a book on metaphors because I had read uh, Lakoff and Johnson on, on uh, metaphors we think by mm-hmm. or live by uh, years earlier. And it had always intrigued me that they aren't just way, nice ways to explain things, but they actually shape yes. uh, how we think. And uh, he said, yes, well, it sat for some years. And then he finally uh, emailed me or we met and he said, let's do this. So I think that was published in 2011, mm. our book on uh, metaphors. And in fact, uh, Alison Jewell has a chapter in, that, in mm-hmm. that book. I don't think there are any other uh, Trinity Western people, but there were a couple people from either the Washington or the British Columbia Christian Schools mm. groups who had chapters in it. And uh, I have no idea how it's done because it's, or how it's done, I mean, how it's sold, because it uh, has been pirated and it's available full text online <laughs> for free. That's true. And uh, when I ta- talked to the publisher, they said, if we take it down or we sue them the next day, it's back up on another site. So yeah. uh, I get about $20 a year from that book, which means <laughs> 10, 10 copies a year are purchased and a thousand are, are free. Yeah. So yeah, but that's my, my sort of history of Harrow. And we also were involved uh, together in a group called the International Community of Christian Teacher Educators, okay. ICCTE. That's right. Uh, and uh, Ken uh, Budlis has also been involved with that. And uh, Harold and I were actually two of the people at the original meeting in uh, Palace Heights oh, wow. uh, in the Chicago area in 1994 or five hmm. at Trinity Christian College there. So yeah, we go back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, my colleague, uh, Dr. Matthew Etherington, yeah. and, and he's on the board, 
I think now of ICCTE. ICCTE. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and we're potentially trying to discern if IC, ICCTE will have a conference up here sometime, mm. hopefully soon. But yeah, but we'll see. Well, the last one in Canada was actually at Redeemer in 2014. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I would argue if you're going to call yourself international, you should probably do that. <laughs> so yeah, good. Make an application. Yeah, I will. So circling back to that um, that book, because I, I did read snippets of it, mm-hmm. um, and then I, I wrote down a quote that I thought was relevant. So you wrote, many educators noted that changes, <clears throat> excuse me, the changes that pre-service and in-service teachers undergo when they begin to examine their own metaphors for teaching, learning, mm-hmm. and other aspects of education. And funny enough, we've been doing that fairly regularly in our own teacher education program. Mm. So I, I have taught in our 200-level um, educational philosophy um, foundations type of courses. And one of the uh, primary assignments is to, and I guess this is from Van Brumlin's Heritage, uh, name a metaphor. Mm. And, and he's written about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you can kind of explain more about that, the, the metaphors as what what has been more generative that you found? Has it changed from what you've written here? And, and what has, has perhaps been more limited types of metaphors for educators? Hmm. I'll, I'll answer actually in two ways. First, I use a similar assignment in a, a, a graduate level B.Ed course All that right. I teach at Tyndale hmm. every year. And um, one group of four or five explores metaphors for curriculum. Another group explores metaphors for instruction, for yeah. assessment, for the function of the school. And so on. And the, the task in a, in a group setting, not for, not for grades, the task is identify three prominent metaphors mm. for this thing you've been assigned, example, curriculum, and then choose one that you think uh, has the best explanatory power for what you're trying to understand about mm-hmm. curriculum. And so uh, students, uh, maybe like your students, have found this quite an eye-opener that, oh, uh, not everybody views curriculum the same mm-hmm. way or not everybody <laughs> uh, views assessment the same way. And in that book, for example, Harold's chapter on assessment, uh, he's got a thing in there about lighting a candle versus hitting the mark. Yes. And I think so many, especially, I'll talk about this a little bit tonight, so many uh, educators uh, feel pressure from sort of neoliberal understandings of education that uh, hitting the mark is, we're, we want to measure what you do. Yes. And so you need to meet these standards, as they're called in the U.S., we, you need to meet these standards or show us results. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this, this idea of lighting a candle, or, or um, uh, assessment as covenant, which is one of Harrow's headings in his chapter. I think that's very powerful for some people to think, oh, this isn't just about turning in grades yes. uh, or finding out how did, how did my students do, very common thing. So it's, it's, I think it's eye-opening, liberating perhaps uh, for uh, pre-service teachers to discover how powerfully these work. Mm. But in the, uh, in the book, we... Uh, I mean, it was a selection of people, so we, we all didn't even agree with each other, but we were all trying to get at this, how these shape our thinking. Yeah. So the second part of my answer to you is I've probably moved, if I can use the words right and left, I've probably moved to the left Okay. since whatever I wrote then. <laughs> sure. Because I'm much more um, student-centered now. Uh, probably there will be people object to that language, but um, I'm, I'll call it learning-centered. I'm much more learning-centered now even than I was in 2011 when that book came out and more and more, um, I don't know if there's a clever uh, name for a metaphor, but I'm much more uh, interested now in helping students uh, figure out their program mm. 
and articulate their vision of life and how that applies in classrooms. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, my I joked with the class I'm teaching this semester that this will be the first lecture I've given uh, since the last time I spoke publicly in mm. the fall of 2019. I don't lecture in class. I yeah. have no lectures in any of my courses. Yeah. And so uh, tonight, a public lecture, I mean, it's a different kind of, it's a different genre, yes. but yes. yeah, I, I direct instruction for me, it's, it's in the past. Okay. Yeah. So what would that mean for, <laughs> you know, a classroom full of 25, 30 students? Yeah. And, and how would you, <laughs> I don't know, create such an atmosphere so that. Yeah. Well, if you and I were secondary teachers, we'd be using the language of flipped classroom, probably. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so let's read this, uh, this passage tonight or this part of your textbook or whatever it is. For B.Ed. students, it would uh, read these two journal articles, and uh, tomorrow we're going to work on this together in class. So uh, a textbook I've used for some years at, all the way from the doctoral level to undergrad, and I'm using this semester in a master's level course, is uh, Parker Palmer's Courage to Teach. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, if you were and I were, I am co-teaching this semester, if you and I were the co-teachers, <laughs> And we're actually launching Palmer next Wednesday night in okay. our course. Um, one of the first things we would do is, is uh, say, uh, they had to write an assignment. Actually, it's due next Wednesday. Um, summarize chapters one and three or chapters one and four in the Courage to Teach. So next Wednesday night, the content of the course will be uh, the students saying, yes. this is what I found helpful in Palmer. This is where I would have nuanced this differently. That's English for <laughs> <Of course. laughs> the problems I saw. And uh, so I think that, um, I'm more interested in having space for conversation now. Mm. And if, if Palmer, uh, with, uh, we have 17 master students in this course, uh, Palmer is a great resource for conversation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm not interested in our drawing a certain conclusion. I'd like to hear how, in this case, he, uh, has had an impact on their thinking about what it means to, uh, you know, the language in the book. Uh, what does this mean about your identity as a teacher? What does this mean about your integrity as a teacher? And so we'll open up a conversation. Mm. And that's very different from, um, well, for example, I, I'm, this is not a criticism of Trinity Western. Every university in the planet says you have to have course objectives, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> learning uh, LOs, learning outcomes. And, and I think sometimes it feels a little soft to say, well, my learning outcomes are that students would uh, allow Palm, Parker Palmer to help them move toward their being a teacher of, of integrity. Yeah. Well, that sounds a little loosey-goosey for some deans, but that's, that's where I've moved. Huh. And I suppose, I mean, I'm old enough to your father. At, <laughs> at, at my age, nobody can fire me. Okay. You know, so I can do whatever I want. Great. And so there's a difference there compared to you. Yeah. Uh, who, you know, when you say these are the five learning outcomes, I think you, I, I care deeply about a meet, the learning outcomes, yeah. but they are softer than most people's. And yeah. they're softer than what I used to specify. Very long answer. No, no, that's great. There it is. I think, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with the BC curriculum as compared to Ontario and, oh, okay. I, I feel it's in that, that vein, that, that ballpark in the sense of it is not uh, based on standardized type of learning. It's definitely swung completely the other way. Instead, mm. it's, it's more, you know, trying to journey alongside mm -hmm. the students and therefore the grading kind of reflects that. Mm. So there are are targets that you aim for but even the quote report cards it, it's more are they are they proficient or are they mm. exceeding um, mm -hmm. what you hope they're they're doing so it, it's kind of intriguing that here in bc it's it's at that type of environment mm. um i come from toronto so <laughs> i know east coast and west coast is, is very different in those ways mm -hmm. so i'm trying to wrestle with 
my metaphor is like what's how could i position ideally how i hope my students who are pre-service teachers um how will they grow and and learn and and what Mm -hmm. should that look like um (laughs) and as a teacher educator i'm still wrestling with what is the appropriate metaphor Mm. for that and may you do so yes until the day you retire yeah right really (laughs) so um yeah it's an interesting um challenge tonight i'll show a diagram as you know mm. uh, everybody has a curriculum model on the internet except you and me apparently <laughs> and uh, and so i'll put mine on the screen tonight but w- when i first developed this uh, slightly different diagram several years back uh, i had the word curriculum leading with an arrow to instruction leading with an arrow to assessment leading mm. with another arrow to curriculum and and some students this is only 10 years ago or so some students would say why does that last arrow go back up to curriculum mm-hmm. and i at that time, I had the word, I uh, inserted the word recalibration because mm. after we, we don't just turn grades in, yes. we recalibrate. What did I not do right this semester? And what do I need to change next semester, next iteration of this course? Mm. And I finally dropped the word recalibration out and just left the arrow there to say, we always go back to our curriculum instruction and ask, well, in light of how they did, what did I, what do I need to do differently? Mm-hmm. Well, when you were in grade three, no teacher had that language, yes. right? I need to turn grades in. Yeah. Uh, and now, I mean, we use the word formative assessment. It's just part of natural language for our pre-service teachers now. Yes. It wasn't 25 years ago. <laughs> it was unheard of. I know. And okay. in fact, and if you like to use the, look at the language, summative assessment also was not in the language, though that's all we did mm-hmm. uh, 25 mm-hmm. or 30 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I, I will, I, I have to confess, I haven't read the entire book yet, <laughs> but I will. It's I, free online. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I, I also note that you've um, written a few other ones. That's why I wanted to, to have this conversation. Um, I guess your newest book for now, because I, I know you're potentially <laughs> announcing a new one, um, is trying to tie the connection between flow and hack. Yeah, that was actually, it's uh, three books ago, but okay. it's our interest, my original interest, I've read Csikszentmihalyi 30 years ago. Yes. And I've always been interested in how, well, almost how can I get out of the way so my students can get into a flow state mm. in class. I won't review all of Csikszentmihalyi's work, but I had a colleague in, at George Fox in a university in Oregon when I was teaching there in the doctoral program, as was she, and she said, uh, Let's let's see if there's a space between Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow and Max Van Manen's work on tact, mm-hmm. and ask does teacher tact have anything to do with the classes where flow actually happens mm-hmm. for students? And as you know, you can ask teachers how did today go, and teachers will report, oh, I had this great day, I was just cooking. Yeah. Well, did the students get into flow? Was was our question, not mm-hmm. were you cooking? <laughs> and so we uh, recorded all these narratives and and transcribed them, and many of them people wrote to us. And, and asked in these situations where teachers reported that students were in a flow state, mm-hmm. what were the conditions? And were they, were they the things that Csikszentmihalyi listed as conditions for flow? How much did it have to do with Van Manen's work on TAC? Mm-hmm. And uh, my colleague here, uh, Susan uh, uh, Thornhill, uh, uh, sorry, Susanna Thornhill, uh, was not Canadian. And so the word Gretzky doesn't mean much to her. <laughs> but my my current example, I guess, would be Connor McDavid, okay. who just looks like he's not even thinking about hockey. Mm-hmm. But he knows everything that's going on on the rink. And I think if 
I don't know if Max Van and Man, Van Manen is a hockey fan, but <laughs> you know, really, uh, Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby uh, just exemplify tact. They just mm -hmm. in, sort of intuitively know. Mm. And uh, you and I have both observed teachers like that, and uh, I think those teachers are the likeliest ones where to have classrooms where students end up in flow. Mm -hmm. So that's where that book came from: was mm. trying to ask, is there a connection between Chick Semmelweis's work and and Max Van Manen's work? Yeah, yeah. Can you speak more about uh, Van Manen and and pedagogical tact in general? Like, how does that differ <laughs> from? I guess you mentioned in your book uh, a a regular version of tact, and and it's different. Yeah. Um, um, well, it, as I understand Van Man, and, and of course he's, he's done this in articles, he's done yes. this in at least two, <laughs> two complete books. Um, but he, he calls it this kind of intuitive knowing mm -hmm. of what to do. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, this is why I mentioned Gretzky because he had this famous line, the good player always knows where the puck is, mm -hmm. but the great player knows where it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, now Van, Van Manen may, he may have known Gretzky because they lived in the same city, but, um, I think the great teacher... Uh, the good teacher knows where the puck is, but mm -hmm. the great teacher knows what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, I'm an experienced, a veteran teacher knows if this happens, then that's going to happen. Yeah. Whereas a brand new teacher, and this is why you and I do the work we do with pre-service teachers, a brand new teacher doesn't know if you say that, <laughs> this is going to happen. Yes. Whereas a 20-year veteran, a sensitive 20-year veteran who's mm -hmm. learned something is going to, well, no, oh boy, if mm -hmm. I do this, this is going to happen. And so I think uh, Van Manen's sense of, of tact is unlike the ordinary English usage where, you know, somebody, uh, they've buttoned their shirt wrong. How do I say this right, Tactful, you know, yes. tactfully? And it's, well, it's, there's an overlap. If you drew a Venn diagram, I think the two meanings overlap. But mm. Van Manen, it's much more this, um, well, intuitive is the only word I can think of, this almost natural sense of this is what I need to do. Mm. And when I think about, uh, for instance, some of these, Olympic athletes right now who are in China. I think I can't even hold my balance on a <laughs> snowboard. Yes. And this young woman the other day did a 1,620 degree, four and a half turn. And, uh, and she just, it feels like she was born to the board. Yeah. And uh, that's, I think, what Van Manen is getting at. She just, mm -hmm. it's a natural, it just belongs there. Mm -hmm. So I, I hope I didn't uh, misrepresent him there, but <laughs> yeah. And of course, well, you know this because of your, your academic background, but um, because of his connections to uh, phenomenology, yes. I think a number of people get scared off yeah. by that. And they think he's off in kind of in a never-never land. Mm. But I actually think his descriptions of teacher tact and of how classrooms can work and should work in his view, mm -hmm. um, I think he's on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a, a colleague, Norm Friesen, and he was a, a former Canada research chair. Um, funny enough, I just have one of his articles right hmm. here about the tact and pedagogical triangle um, a while ago, 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but he's written, he's, I think, uh, Van, one of Van Manen's students, mm. and he's written, he's built on that, uh -huh. of, of the pedagogical tact and, and what that can entail, um, which is interesting. And it's, it's funny that you also mentioned um, snowboarding, because I had come from Toronto and I came out here originally to study at Regent College in 2009. And along the way, I met my wife here mm. um, and we got married. But one of the things she wanted to do was to teach me how to snowboard, um, which I've only gone once before meeting her. And that clearly did not go well. <laughs> we, we, when we got married, we got, sorry, when we were dating, 
we got uh, snowboarding passes for the season at a local mountain at, mm-hmm. at Cypress, which is where they hosted the snowboarding right. events for, in 2010. In 2010, so it's a beautiful mountain, and she tried to teach me. And oh my goodness, <laughs> that did not bode well. So instead, I was a PhD student at the time. Um, I would go by myself. I would watch these YouTube videos, funny enough. And um, I think I learned better trying to self-learn <laughs> and, mm. and do it myself. And uh, I'm an okay snowboarder now, but, but yeah, <laughs> not for um, my wife trying. But I do wonder, I guess, in light of that, are, are we able to train this kind of pedagogical tech? Like, how, how does that work? I thought that question yeah. was coming. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And it's uh, in my arrogant moments, I think, uh, of students in front of me in a Bachelor of Education class at Mount Royal in Calgary, uh, where I taught for six years. Um, and I used to think I could pick out the ones who would turn into good teachers okay. uh, automatically or mm-hmm. intuitively. And I've been wrong a few times. And some of the ones I never picked as, oh, you're going to be a great teacher, mm. turned out to be great. And some of the ones I thought would be aren't. And so I, your question, of course, is such an old question in yeah. teacher ed. And I feel like the older I get, the less I'm sure of an answer. Mm. Um, so can, uh, like these, uh, these people who are so good, you know, mm-hmm. uh, are they, did they learn it or not? I'm, this is, I'm going to go way off from snowboarding no, now, but Stephen please. King, the horror writer <laughs> in his book on writing says there's four levels, mm. bad, fair, good, great. Mm-hmm. He puts himself only at good. Mm. And he says, great is for Shaw and Shakespeare and so on. And, uh, but then he has these, this rule, nobody can move from bad to fair and nobody can move from good to great. Mm. So as a professor who reads students' essays, yes. I just discouraged you because <laughs> there's, with the bad writers, there's nothing you can do, according mm-hmm. to Stephen King. Mm-hmm. But he says you can move from fair to good. And so I think back to teaching or to snowboarding, can you move from, fair to, from bad to fair? Can you move from fair to good? Can you move from good to great? Mm. I don't know the answer, but in teaching, uh, we can all learn more uh, strategies for, for learning. Mm-hmm. We can all learn more strategies. We could all learn listening strategies. Mm. Um, I don't know what that other thing is called. Is it teacher tact or is it some kind of perception of what's really going on in the room? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that can be taught. Yeah. Maybe it can be auto, auto-learned as you learned boarding, <laughs> auto-didact- you know, an autodidactic sure. uh, way. I don't know. Um, but meanwhile, both of us are still involved in teacher education. Yeah. So you must, we both must believe that people can mm-hmm. move up Stephen King's uh, four-level scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. It's late in the afternoon to ask a question like that, actually. <laughs> no, that's, that's perfect. Because that's, that's probably the big thing that we continually wrestle with, how, how to better help our students. And if that's not the case, then, then what should we be doing here? Mm-hmm. Um, funny enough, I would probably ask a variation of that question to you tonight as a respondent. <laughs> like, how do we consider what should be the, the primary thing um, in such a program as this like what should we be mm. doing how should should we be refocusing um <clears throat> should we focus on i guess the ethics uh, as a primary um i guess philosophical way of, of being even in mm. um and so we we're continually wrestling with these these different dimensions of our teacher candidates and in trying to discern um the what and the why of it i guess yeah you know i uh, not to pre, 
answer whatever tonight's question, but just you got me thinking if if the opposite of approaching a B.Ed. program is, if the opposite of something like ethical or philosophical mm -hmm. is technical and mechanistic and reductionistic, mm -hmm. well, is there another different approach than, because immediately I think, well, if, if we're not going to be ethical and philosophical, we're just going to reduce this to, you're going to learn a lot of methods in our program. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you should learn a lot of methods anyway. Yes. But uh, I wonder, is there another and I, I don't have one in mind. I'm just wondering, are those the two ends of a continuum? Mm -hmm. It's a really foundational program or it's a really technical mm -hmm. um, uh, method, yeah, methodological program. I don't know. Is there a third, is there a third way? Don't know the answer, <laughs> but thank you, friend. I can anticipate that question tonight. I'll ask something really profound sure. to say. Yeah, because I, I do feel continually that there is a, a contingent of our students who that's what they assume the program should be or will be where they they will receive or be taught these skills yeah, or yeah. these methods and by learning it or by working at it therefore they will become a proficient teacher yeah and perhaps in part but clearly um i'm getting a sense we we have this bigger belief about you know their ethical well-being and their mm -hmm. um and even now uh, reading your <laughs> your talk tonight, uh, even self care and, and their consideration mm -hmm. for themselves, um, there's this whole piece that sometimes gets dismissed even mm -hmm. by the students themselves. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, I gave a paper with a colleague. Uh, well, a colleague. She was a former doc student, and she's a school classroom teacher in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that in almost every jurisdiction. Uh, um, the Department of Education says something like teachers will graduate with the knowledge, skills, and the third word is often attitudes. In some jurisdictions, it's dispositions. Mm -hmm. And in some uh, interesting, in Alberta, I think it says aptitudes. But um, we gave a paper asking, should the word practices be added to this list? Mm. Because a student at, the, at graduation day from the B.Ed. program would have these skills, this knowledge, and we hope these dispositions or these attitudes. And then we asked in this paper, well, would we see these dispositions by watching this classroom teacher and her practices? Mm. What, what practices would we be looking for? Well, this, it doesn't say that. We looked at all 50 states and all 10 provinces, and we couldn't find anybody who had the word practices in that little <laughs> list. Okay. So presumably, we're assuming the practices will be such and such yes. in light of the fact that they have what? They have these skills, or they have this knowledge, or they have these, it's usually, it usually says dispositions or attitudes. Mm. We don't know the answer. Why, why is practices missing? And I think it relates to this conversation in the sense of if I, if I watch your classroom for two weeks, not just for an hour, mm -hmm. um, what will I see? Hmm. I will see these skills, mm -hmm. not presumably, because the Department of Education authorized Trinity Western to give you <laughs> this degree. Yes. And I, certainly you'll have this knowledge because you've prepared to be a grade six teacher or whatever, and you know the science or the social studies or the ELA curriculum, et cetera. What practices will I see? Hmm. Like, will you be going from desk to desk and checking in, or will you be sitting at your desk waiting yeah. for people to check in with you? Well, that's not specified in the yes in the in the province's uh, description of uh, of the teachers they want to graduate. But as you know, it's really important uh, yeah. whether you're sitting at your desk waiting for them to come to you, or whether you're cruising, floating yeah. in in the room. So. Huh. So I, you... I, I should tell you this oddball thing, and yeah, I'll please. give you the name of this teacher later. A Calgary teacher developed an app, and when she floats in the room, she types into her phone all the time. Okay. 
It loads into a spreadsheet automatically all these anecdotal comments. Okay. Samson is doing really well today helping so-and-so. Samson is struggling today to stay on task. Mm. Samson really got this math concept. And she said when it comes to making up, making up, sorry, wrong verb, (laughs) to composing her, her comments at the end of November or whenever that is, she says, I've got this whole spreadsheet and I've got the mm. dates on every comment and I just go up and down the rows all day long or around the tables and I just am working with the students and I type in my phone, this is how so-and-so is doing today. Mm. So she said, I get volumes of academic, uh, sorry, of uh, anecdotal yeah. um, commentary uh, day by day. And yeah. uh, it's a brilliant use of tech, of classroom tech, of phone technology, yeah. really. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, they, they've had, for example, my, I have two young kids, one's three. Um, so not quite school age, but my son, the elder one is, is in grade one. He's just turned seven. Um, and his school, they use this, this technology called fresh grade. And it's very similar to what you're describing. Um, it's pretty popular out here. I think it's based in Victoria or Kelowna or somewhere Mm -hmm. in BC. And, and essentially they're trying to, um, create e-portfolios, electronic portfolios for all students. Mm. and allow the teacher the opportunity to have this anecdotal evidence of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, <laughs> as much as I, I admire that, and from an ed tech perspective, I'm like, yeah, that's great, wonderful. My son is in a class where the teacher is, I guess, a bit older. And, and so we get irregular updates. Mm-hmm. So his, That's IRR regular I-R-R. or E-regular? E- <laughs> Not e <laughs> So his, you know, his, when he was in kindergarten, his crew, um, they kind of got split into two classes. And the other class is, is a younger, more mm-hmm. hip teacher, I guess. And she has the reverse issue where she blasts the parents with, mm. with tons of, you know, comments and, mm-hmm. and pictures every day, which I, I would prefer. But um, our teacher, his teacher, you know, maybe once a semester, you know, like oh, <laughs> twice yeah. a semester. Yeah. So I do wonder, and huh. yeah, there would definitely need to be some kind of retraining or, or PD or, or whatever to, to help <laughs> these teachers, I guess, improve. But I don't know if that's a necessity hmm. um, for all teachers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I guess it's worth investigating for sure. <laughs> well, and maybe people like my age should just get really worried about COVID and not teach anymore. And, uh, yeah, and I know you're going to address that tonight. Clearly, a, a big concern. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, well, we can discuss more optimistic things. <laughs> one one book um, that kind of stuck out for me, and again, I apologize, I haven't read the whole thing. Yeah. Um, you wrote curriculum planning with design language, yeah. and I like that because um, I I fashion myself as a a, a wannabe could have been architect. Mm. Um, I had gone to the University of Waterloo um, to pursue computer science, and lo and behold, mm-hmm. I have nothing to do with it except <laughs> I play with education technologies. Uh, but if I had not gone there for my undergraduate degree, I would have gone to University of Toronto for architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, so to this day, I'm still interested in it. You can see my little toy here. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I found it fascinating that your book was all about that learning from aesthetics, especially mm-hmm. space and architecture mm-hmm. and design thinking. Um, 
especially in the nitty gritty of you know designing unit plans mm. and, and whatnot. So I was wondering if you could just share a bit of that. Was how how did you merge the two architecture yeah. and uh, that's a good question. And I, instructional design. I was yeah. teaching um, secondary social studies in English in uh, the Edmonton area. A grade twelve student said to me, "It's twentieth century history course in grade twelve social studies in Alberta." At that time, and the student said to me, "What's World War II doing in this unit? Doing in this in this course?" Yeah, and I <laughs> thought, "You dumb student!" And then I thought, "Well, you dumb teacher! Oh. How did this student not know? How did this teacher not explain to this student that in a 20th century course, it's going to have World War II in it?" Mm -hmm. And and I uh, uh, almost at the same time, I read an article in Wired magazine. It was a two-page summary of the work of architect Christopher Alexander, who had taught it his whole career at Berkeley, and then re he's retired now in England. And uh, I read this article and had 15 principles or 10 principles or something from Alexander's work. And uh, I thought um, a course that has uh, coherence, it would be obvious to a grade 12 student why World War II is in a course called 20th Century History and mm -hmm. Ideology. And at the, so I, at the same semester, the student made this, this comment of really implicitly about a dumb teacher. <laughs> I, I read Alexander and I thought all these principles that were summarized in this two-page article on Wired, which is still online, hmm. this article, um, all these principles apply to curriculum. And he was saying these principles apply to building, uh, designing the interior of a room or designing a whole house or designing a town or city. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought these principles apply here. For example, one of the principles is uh, a house or a room needs a center. And the center could be a piece of furniture, could be a picture of your important grandfather. It could be the fireplace. Mm -hmm. And I thought, does a student come to a new, a new unit of, uh, in my social studies grade 12 course and know what the center, central concept is that we're going to work on for these several weeks? And does a student in a you know, grade six unit on the water cycle or the electricity and magnetism unit, which is often in about grade five or grade six, does that student at the end of two weeks say, the most important thing we learned in the water cycle unit was this. And uh, another uh, concept, which I don't think educators think too much about, is uh, one of the architectural concepts is uh, green spaces. Mm -hmm. And we know that our brains need places to recreate. The air needs places to get rid of carbon and produce oxygen and so on. But sometimes, especially in courses that are, are examined with a provincial diploma exam, we think we cannot take a break. Mm -hmm. We need to push this freight train. We have 83 days until you write the diploma exam. Mm -hmm. Etc. And when I read Alexander, I thought the same way a city needs a space, a unit needs a space. Mm. And the space could be a guest, the space could be a day that we're just going to do in the library. And as you know, 75% of the students will use their time well when they're in the library. Uh, space could be a video in the classroom, etc. And uh, green spaces became a central feature of my teaching. That if mm. In a 12-day run, or for example, uh, the longest period of teaching without a long weekend in Canada is usually New Year's to February 20th or so, right? Mm -hmm. Seven weeks straight in a lot of jurisdictions or six weeks straight. And uh, that's a long stretch for five day weeks. Yeah. And so I think in a, a lower grades where a unit might run for three months, well, I think we all need a break, including the teacher. <laughs> How can we create a two day break? And of course, for some courses, a trip to the science center or a trip to the river or, mm. uh, you know, that kind of thing can be, it can be intense learning, mm -hmm. but it's also a break from the classroom routine. So it's a green space, like a park in a city. I won't give you the whole book, <laughs> but I've read uh, pretty much everything Alexander's written. And uh, it, I, 
even today as I was driving up here from the Abbotsford Airport, I thought, I, I feel like making another book just about bridges because they mm. fascinate me. And the idea of, uh, if you can get by with less material in a bridge, of course, you save money and it looks mm. more beautiful. I'm thinking of the, is it called the, the new bridge? There's two bridges that cross by uh, Port Man right beside each other, a new one and an old one. Yes, I forgot the names, yeah. but, but yes. But the one is quite dramatic now with these mm. cables. Mm -hmm. And and I think, uh, which is why the front of that book has a picture of a, a suspension bridge mm. uh, or the Caplano, the pass, the people bridge in Caplano Canyon. Yeah. It's uh, just two cables mm. and it holds up this thing. And I think, is there a way to make a unit or a whole course that's just strung on two cables mm. so that students would have a sense of, we're going to learn this this semester, and we're going to learn this this semester. Hmm. These are the two things we're going to see in King Lear, or hmm. the two things we're going to see in the water cycle unit. So but, uh, given how that book is sold, I'm not going to make another book on bridges and curriculum. <laughs> it, would, it would sell one copy to you, and my, and my, my wife might buy one. You know? So I'm not going to do it, but it fascinates me. Yeah. I, no, I, I love design, thinking, architecture. Funny that you brought up bridge, um, and before we started this podcast, um, I was mentioning Ted Aoki to you, the mm -hmm. Canadian curriculum theorist, and he has this whole um, metaphor of the bridge, which is not the bridge. Mm -hmm. And and for him, it came from bridging his Eastern Japanese heritage with you know the Western mm -hmm. world that that he came a part of. But also, um, he's well known for his curriculum um, as lived conceptualization. Yeah. So bridging regular rote curriculum mm -hmm. to curriculum as lived and in that bridging um he brought up there there's like heidegger in there but for me i resonated with a a eastern bridge or like a oriental bridge i don't know if you've had visited one before mm -hmm. um like ubc has the oh what's a garden naitobi garden yeah yeah um, and there's a little Oriental bridge there, but a lot of Oriental bridge in my background is Chinese, a lot of Chinese bridges, um, from the past, they're very ornate and delicate and they are not for necessarily crossing or solely just for crossing. It's not mm -hmm. like I want to get you from point A to point mm -hmm. B. It's actually a potential site of meeting, mm -hmm. right? So there's a lot of stories and legends where two people, they meet at a bridge and they, you know somehow experience love or wonder mm -hmm. for the universe and, and things like that so that that might be an interesting i think i don't know metaphor <laughs> if you do consider writing that book because i really resonate with mm. this bridging concept well, well when uh, when harold van Brimlin and i were talking about the metaphors book um uh, initially my wife who's also a professor uh said uh i see i use the metaphor of a bridge because teacher's job is to connect the student with the curriculum materials. Mm -hmm. When the time came to write the book, she was too busy. And so she doesn't have a chapter <laughs> in that book on metaphors, but uh, it's always stuck with me, this idea that, that my task is to, uh, in a, well, get out of the way to some degree so that the student can connect mm. to the material. And of course, in uh, To Know As We Are Known, Parker Palmer's less known book, mm -hmm. um, his book really on epistemology, he says, that you, the professor, and I, the student, are approaching what he calls the big subject together. Mm -hmm. And so, as opposed to, who's the professor in that story? You are, I think. <laughs> I have to get through you to get to the material, because mm -hmm. it's in your ring binder, or it's in your PowerPoint deck. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I can't get to the material without you. Mm -hmm. And that's what Parker Palmer would call kind of a traditional epistemology. But a bridging one would be, how can I just 
builds you something so you can get to the material, mm -hmm. right? Or in the in a Eastern uh, language, how can I build a bridge so that you can meet yep. the material? Yeah. So yeah, well, <laughs> and my my interest in bridges was uh, connected to curriculum was more um, sort of how little material can we get away with, not to make the bridge unsafe. Like I'm thinking mm. about bridges around here in the Lower Mainland. Um, we don't want the bridge unsafe. And in fact, when they test bridges, they park. It's like the Ottawa convoy. Yeah. They park about 50 semi-trailers on top of a bridge <laughs> to find out is it good for 10 times the weight it would ever have on it normally, mm -hmm. including a foot of snow. Mm. And, and so that's how they test it. But I'm thinking in a unit, how clean can we make the structure of this unit so that it's easy for students to grasp? Mm. Or in the case of, I, you just told me as much as I know about Chinese bridges, in the case of a Chinese bridge, how could the structure of this unit be so compelling that students would want to dig in? Mm -hmm. Like, how could I, I, this sounds like inquiry learning, but how could I present something on the first day that would be so intriguing that they would say, this electricity and magnetism unit is way more fun than I was thinking. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that, you know, this happens or that that works that way. And so that, that was sort of my, my interest in how little material can we use? Mm. Not because I don't want to be a good teacher, but as you know, teachers already work about 56 hours a week. So <laughs> yes. can we make things a little simpler? And there is a um, controversy right now in Alberta over a new curriculum because the provincial government. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the new mathematics curriculum, uh, sorry, the proposed mathematics curriculum was released a few weeks ago, 206 objectives in grades K to three. Mm. And my grandson just learned how to spell his name. He's in kindergarten. He's in French immersion kindergarten. He just learned how to spell his name and he sent us a postcard in November with his name written on it. And I thought, well, that's good, Malcolm, because next year you're going to have to learn how to multiply five digits by five digits. <laughs> and that's only one of 206 objectives, you know. Yeah. And in social studies, this has now been abandoned, but in social studies in grade one, one of the objectives that's been tossed out, fortunately, trace the effects of Genghis Khan on economy <laughs> and culture. Uh, through all of Central and, and East and West Asia. <laughs> this is a kid who just learned how to spell his name. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, the Alberta Department of Ed needs to read my book, I guess, and say, <laughs> oh, we need lighter structures here. Mm -hmm. We can't have 206 math objectives in the first, uh, in kindergarten and the first three grades. Mm -hmm. Just, it's going to, uh, it's like parking 500 trucks on a bridge and mm -hmm. it crashes. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, the, the K3 math curriculum in Alberta would have crashed, or it will if they go ahead with this thing. Mm. But uh, not to get too political, but <laughs> the curriculum that was in place was not created by the NDP government. It was created by a previous conservative government. Mm -hmm. But uh, the NDP uh, had a little bit to do with it during their four years in power, and the current government is just trying to undo everything that was done previously. And so they went at this old curriculum as if it was a left-wing uh, propaganda piece when actually it's been in place since around 2005. Yeah. And uh, there were uh, about nine years of conservative governments overseeing this curriculum that mm -hmm. is just being tossed out the window now. So it's, it's a crazy time there. <laughs> but, uh, and of course, uh, teachers especially bear the brunt. Students don't know what the government is or what it has to do with curriculum, but mm -hmm. uh, teachers who served on these committees, you know, were seconded to work on curriculum committees. Just going nuts because the things that were implemented against their advice, like, just beyond belief. Yeah. You know, Genghis Khan in grade one. <laughs> is it, I, could, I couldn't even spell the word economic in grade 12, <laughs> let alone in grade one. So, wow. went off the track there. Sorry. No, no, no. That's, that's great. I love it.
Well, anticipating your your talk tonight, I know it's about redeeming teaching, um, redemptive teaching potentially. Yeah. So I, I guess just to finish, um, if if you could leave with one big idea, one big thought for our pre-service and in-service teachers, um, what would that be? Wow. Um, I think it might be the hardest work on earth. And um, unfortunately, so many people, I will speak specifically. Tonight I'll be mentioning, as you know, because you read the paper, this idea of the apprenticeship of observation. That when Dan Lorty, the sociologist, originally coined this phrase in 1975, he meant that people like you and me, teacher educators, have trouble sort of undoing what teachers already think, because peace service teachers already think, because they sat in classrooms for 13 years. Mm. And uh, they get there, and they already know how to teach, apparently. And so my concern is that right now teachers face an apprenticeship of observation among everybody. Mm. Everybody thinks they know how to teach. Mm -hmm. And we have state legislators, uh, legislators, yes, in various U.S. states and some Canadian provinces who think they know better than teachers mm. how to teach. And I think, uh, I, I agree, everyone has a stake in their child's education. I have a stake in how well my bumper, uh, my trailer hitch is put on, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to tell the welder how to, how to weld. Mm -hmm. And so we share the concern that my, you know, I don't want my trailer to roll into the ditch, but I'm not going to tell him how to weld. Mm. And yet we have all kinds of people saying, well, I know, I know what needs to go on in classrooms. And I would say to teachers, pre-service, in-service teachers today, uh, find graceful ways to say, um, well, just a minute. <laughs> Sorry, it should be more profound than that. <laughs> no, no, that's but, great. Like, I don't know how to... I don't know how to do that. I'm, yeah. Uh, after the podcast is over, I'll tell you a really funny story related to this. <laughs> sure. So that just wait a minute comment. Um, I, I, I guess it would look different in every context for every person. Um, but at the very least, you would hope that, I guess, the tone or the civility yeah. or would, would come through. Yeah. Um, at, at least challenge the notion that, you know, hey, teachers should... <laughs> They are experts in their own field, mm -hmm. and they should be able to to give voice to this profession. Mm -hmm. I will tell this one story on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> please. There is a story, and I've tried to find it, and I think it's probably an urban legend. Okay. But near Medicine Hat, Alberta, is a very large base called Suffield Military Canadian Armed Forces. And uh, the legend has it that uh, the Medicine Hat School Board didn't know how to run a school. And so the military said, we'll take over the school ourselves. Mm. And a week later, they gave it back to the Medicine Hat School Board. <laughs> they said, we had no idea how yeah. hard it was yeah. to run a school. Now, I looked this up even just a few weeks ago because I thought, if this is true, <laughs> uh, it's a great story. I heard it because I used to do various things for the Department of Ed in Alberta. And that's where I heard it, it was in a meeting. And, and I thought, that's, that just captures what mm. frustrates me about all these people who think they know better than I do, mm -hmm. the thing I'm actually an expert in. Mm. And I promise not to interfere with the thing you're an expert in, but would you please let me try to do my work here? And I know it involves your child. Mm. So we have to find a meeting point. Maybe there's another place for a bridge metaphor. Mm. We have to have a meeting point because you are deeply concerned about your child, more concerned than I am, obviously. Mm. But I ha I'd studied how to teach. So how can we meet here? Mm -hmm. And instead of just, you're, you say, I'm going to take over that school. <laughs> And a week later, give it back to me. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out Medicine Hat School Board knew something about schools. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so.
So I, I didn't search past the first page of Google results, but I, I really should find out. Maybe yeah. somebody on the Medicine Hat School Board would know the story. <laughs> anyway, there's, there's the end of my word. Great. Well, thank you, Ken. That, that was wonderful. Um, I, I'm sure we will potentially have this up shortly after our, <laughs> your talk tonight. But, yeah. but thank you so much. This was great. Well, thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. A special thank you to Dr. Ken Badley for a wonderful conversation. This episode is brought to you by the School of Education at Trinity Western University. Until next time, may you be inspired in your educational journey.